Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. And I swear we need to change the name of this podcast. <laughs> we can't, because how would people find us? Our international following <laughs> All would those be people, thwarted. How would they find us? We need a rebrand, a relaunch. Yes. We ran today. Three miles, three plus miles, right? Not I, stopping. Yeah. We are runners. Two pastors take a run. I mean, we I don't, are runners. <laughs> we are we are shufflers. <laughs> Two pastors <laughs> shuffle and make a podcast. But you didn't even say who you were. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And so, Kate, what is astonishing you on this Tuesday before Ash Wednesday? Well, I just want everyone to know that right now. Yolanda's brain is going in overdrive because we just got ready to start. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to say. I'll just wing it. And that is like me saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to sit and listen. So I just want you all to know that while I talk, he's sitting there sometimes in you panic just mode. Wing it. Sometimes I, I agree. You, you, I'm sometimes you go all without the time. a plan. Um, Did you say you do that all the time? I mean, yes, I think it's been well established that a lot of times I find out what I think when I am listening to myself talk. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just being honest. Um, so what I am astonished about is um, I was practicing my greatest athletic skill, which is reading fast. Um, but I found this book um, by this guy named Mark Hammer. Hammer, um, and it's, It is called How to Catch a Mole. Um, wisdom from a life lived in nature and it is really and truly literally about a man contemporary man in Wales who is a mole catcher that is his profession and he has lived a very interesting life um, was lived lived unhoused for a while when he was younger and then went to art school and and, and then found this profession of catching moles which I, I am not a nature person um, but I know that for people who garden or for people who love their lawns, um, that moles are a big deal. Um, and, and catching moles is apparently, it's very, very difficult because they're very smart. Um, and I mean, what he, he, he so with the, this book is really, it's, a, it's reflections about his relationship with the out natural world and also it, and it, and about how and why he catches moles. And um, it, and it's very interesting. He's a beautiful writer. And as I was reading it, I just was astonished because he is he's talking about catching moles, but he's also just talking about the relationship between humans and the created world and capital N nature and, you know, for many people and, and me less than the average person, but in, in really profound and I think divinely designed ways, people can have a relationship with God through creation and encounter God in creation. So like, not me, I'm not that kind of person, but people do. And I can appreciate not doing it, but I can appreciate reading about other people doing it. And um, so it's just, it's a beautiful book and it really is, it's nonfiction and it's, prose but actually he then concludes each section of the book with like long poems um but I just was writing just some things he phrases and points he was making which again are are about the mole and about God and not in nature but then they're also just I just was so struck with how many things he was saying about being a mole catcher are exactly how I experience life as a pastor and um, so, I mean, I just was making notes and I just thought I would just um, read some of these quotes that I wrote down because I just, um, you know, I am astonished sometimes when you are encountering either a person or, or a piece of writing that is entirely different from your life and they will say something and it is and it is something that you know to be profoundly true, but in another context it's this revelation that you can recognize as true because it was like something that your own soul <laughs> was trying to articulate. And so um, he's just talking about, there's just the part of the thing about being a mole catcher is that you can't like you, there's, there's no way 
to do it. You just have to figure it out. And so people can kind of talk to you. People who have done it before can talk to you about how they've done it before. And there are like traditions and, but there, but there is no way to do it except to, except to do it. And, um, and he, and so he's writing about that, just like the essential mystery in it that, and he's good at it, but he also just doesn't, can't explain it, can't teach it. There's just an essential mystery to it that you just have to make your peace with, which of course I think is the part of a life of faith that is maddening for us. And yet that, um, you know, scripture is completely transparent about how people in relationship with God will continue to have to seek God. And so that was just sort of the overwhelming metaphor for me in this book is, um, you know, like you can see evidence of the moles, but you have to, you have to seek them out and you can't really know how to find them, but you can't find them if you don't look for them. But, you know, and he was saying, um, like, we don't need to know everything to catch them. Uh, uh, being comfortable with not knowing is an important part of hunting as it keeps all the options open and offers choices. And I was thinking like, that's so true when it comes to the life of faith. Um, because when we are completely confident that we know who God is and how God works, then we are maybe even unconsciously closing ourselves off from where God actually is in the world and how God is leading us because we're so certain, you know, so, you know, accepting, like becoming comfortable with the idea that we don't know everything is paradoxically just really essential in order to be able to know more of God. And you think like we're coming into the season of Lent and in this whole series thinking about like, how do we make decisions for Jesus? And what does it look like when people decided against Jesus in his historical life? And a lot of that was because they, they were just blinded by their certainty. They knew God so well that they knew that God could not be made flesh. They knew that um, there's no way that, the son of God could suffer and die on a cross. Like they were so certain of their knowledge, which their knowledge wasn't wrong. It just wasn't complete. And so, um, you know, I thought that was just a lot of things. Um, I'm stumbling over my handwriting. It's a library book, so I couldn't underline it the way I like to. Um, and the other thing that he said that I thought was just so helpful in approaching Lent is um, said things don't seem to add up in life. Um, as neatly and tidy as much as we would like. I prefer it that way. Reason is just one of the many important ways of experiencing the world. And I think, you know, again, I am a person who likes using my mind and reasoning and, you know, thinking deeply studying scripture, like seeing the interconnections and different pieces, making connections between the life I'm living and the revelation of God in scripture. I mean, the life of the mind is really important to me. Faith seeking understanding is really important to me. And also, and I think this will connect to other things we're going to talk about today. You know, there is the ineffable mystery of God that is so uncomfortable to us because it forces us to live with the truth that we are not in control, that knowledge of God doesn't give us control over God or ourselves, that, that to, say, um, to say that God is a mystery is not to say, to throw up our hands and be like, whatever, nothing matters, I don't know anything. To, to acknowledge God as a mystery is not the same as saying, I don't know anything, but it is the kind of humility that comes in saying what I know, I know in the context of the mystery of God. And um, then, you know, understanding that there are things um, that are beyond our capacity to understand. Um, and I think that, you know, that's just really difficult for, I mean, I think for, you know, 21st century, sophisticated, <laughs> privileged um, people to, to under, you know, to be comfortable with the mystery of God that we experience in life is much more difficult for us than it would have been for someone living, say in the first century for whom just much of the world, you know, the, the 
it's not that there's any less mystery in the world. It's just that we have technology that gives us the illusion that everything can be known at all times. And so uh, I think, you know, our ancient, our spiritual ancestors just were much better at living meaning-filled, purposeful, worshipful lives in the context of mystery than we are in general. And especially that I think that we in our branch of the body of Christ are really into, you know, knowing and being experts and efficiency and like doing things that seem reasonable um, for God and really protecting ourselves from the vulnerability that comes from surrendering to a God of love who is still not our pocket pet. So anyway, that's what this book is, is really beautiful. And, and anyone who knows me personally knows that it is kind of astonishing that I am interested in reading a book about um, nature in general. But yeah, I mean, I am just sort of intrinsically delighted about reading about a mole, a mole catcher. So yeah, I think part of the deep, deep irony of Western Christianity is that on the surface, there is this emphasis on true religion being a relationship with God, right? That Christianity mm -hmm. isn't religion. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. And yet behind that curtain, what we do with that relationship is that we, tr we create formulas, we create outlines, we create one, two, three, A, B, C, in order to um, domesticate, uh, bring down, uh, bring God down to size so that we can understand and therefore um, use God almost as our like personal ATM or a vending machine, right? And instead of it being a relationship, it becomes this mechanical um, from the neck up, we, we find that a lot in our own circles uh, among um, uh, the people in our denomination. Uh, who are brilliant. Who are brilliant. So brilliant that the heart relational part of our faith grows cold. Not only that, it gets criticized as unsophisticated and unworthy of lifting up as something important. And so we, we diminish the very relationship that we promote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and we have talked a lot about, you know, it, understanding God is a mystery, understanding that surrender is an essential part of life following Jesus, which again is language we don't like to use, but I mean, even Jesus, son of God, God incarnate, even Jesus had to surrender to God. And so the fact that we think that we won't have to, it, I mean, just says a lot about, um, it says a lot about our religion. And I, and I think, um, you talk a lot, I think very helpfully about, we, the, the gospel is good news and it is um, practical and it's incarnate and it's embodied and it makes a difference in our lives here and now. And to, to encounter the gospel among many other things that it should do, does it will fill us with hope and inspire us. All of that is true. And the gospel is not self-help. I mean, it's just not yes. self-help. Mm -hmm. And so part of understanding that you know, there's, there's a reason that I walk after God, surrendering to the mystery, knowing that the way that my life is transformed will be good, but not always in a way um, that I will immediately recognize or enjoy in every moment or be celebrated for or, or be seen or, or on, I think this is the main thing, be perceived as successful, right? Um, that, which makes sense because the kingdom that we are being called into is different than the culture we live in now. And so what is seen as desirable and admirable and successful in our culture, it, you know, we're, we are already called to live already in a different place. And so success looks different, which is why the martyrs were not seen as losers. They were seen as those who were triumphant and had been faithful 
through the end and there was real joy and celebration in that. Um, and, and it wasn't seen as a failure of faith, but a triumph of faith. Yeah. If you look at the history of the West, especially in modern times, one of the things that you see is that there is this current of turning to Eastern religions, especially religions like Buddhism, because Christians, because the church has avoided mystery, avoided um, big talk about God. Instead, we, we want a God that we can understand and therefore control. Right. And a God who loves what we love, mm -hmm. approves of what we approve of, and promises us the things that our hearts desire. And that is, by definition, an idol. And I think, again, yes, we, we read scripture for a long time, and we're like, idols? Like, well, how come those dummies used to worship statues? Like, I don't know why scripture keeps going on about that, but that is just not a factor in my life. Like, maybe I need to work on my gossip, but my idol game is solid. And just be like, that's because you don't understand what an idol is. Um, so anyway... What's astonishing? Time's up, buddy. What's, What's astonishing, astonishing you? Well, <laughs> listen, um, on this Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, as we were saying on the walk, um, run. Why did I say walk? I don't know. We are runners. Shufflers. We are runners. Every day we're shuffling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was really good. I am astonished that my view of Ash Wednesday is not changing, but I'm adding something this year to my understanding of Ash Wednesday. So there is a traditional text from the Old Testament, from the book of Joel, that's read on Ash Wednesday. And in that text, uh, there's a, a plague of locusts that's taking over the city, and they are, they're everywhere. And the prophet Joel sees in that plague of locusts, the impending judgment of God. Like this is a foretaste, this is a warning. And so people, let's get right with God because if you think this is bad, the wrath that's coming is worse. We have sinned against God and this is a sign, so let us repent. And the text, ends with God saying, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And I, for many years, have preached, and I still believe this is true, that one of the things we do on Ash Wednesday is to take a serious look at our lives the imposition of ashes reminds us that we are mortal and that one day we are going to die and that we will be um, held accountable before God for the lives that we've lived. I believe that. And so there is a right, holy fear. There should be a, um, a reverence, a kind of awe. Uh, as we stare into the abyss of death, as we stare into the reality that we will be held accountable for the lives that we've lived, um, and, and then realize that while we are still breathing, we have the opportunity to return to God. Yeah. And God is good and kind and gracious and merciful. And when we return, God will revive and renew and restore um, that place in second chronicles of uh, my love where um, God says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves turn from their wicked ways pray seek my face then will I hear from heaven um, forgive their sin and heal their land I believe that and and what I'm seeing <laughs> and I should have seen this in previous years, I think it's because this year, Ash Wednesday, also falls on Valentine's Day. This idea of 
this is all about, this is also about God's love for us. And I think in the past, I have preached Ash Wednesday, that theme as God's anger, God's disappointment, God's wrath concerning our sin. And there is that that is legit. That is true. But I, I, in previous years, never really sounded the note of God's love for us. God's fierce, will not let us go love. God's um, steadfast love for us. Well, I and, think, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and, and that, that verse that I quoted at the end of Joel, I think it's verse 12 of chapter 2, where God says, even now, in spite of everything you've done, in spite of all of your drifting away, return to me. Oh, you've pulled it up on the computer. How great are you? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding. There it is. And I, I missed it in the text. Abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, like sound the alarm. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. That's verses 12 through 15. And, and so this year, um, I am, even though we are not having an Ash Wednesday service, um, I've been talking to um, the saints at Dariah Church. We we talked about last night in our elders meeting uh, about the day that we're saying as a congregation, okay, for us this year, it is, it is not about the ashes. It is about the opportunity to do a honest assessment of our spiritual lives. Where are we in our, here we go, relationship with God and know that God is saying return to me. Even now, wherever you are, return to me. And that the promise is the one to whom we are re returning loves us most and best. Well, I think that the problem is it's so hard to picture God not through the lens of powerful human rulers and leaders. And, I, you know, just and and then experienced last night as at city council. And like we, we have this belief as people that the only way that people will do good is if they are afraid of bad right and so you have this sense and people preach repentance like you better repent and get back with God or else you're going to get the whooping of a lifetime right so like the only reason to choose God like if you don't make people scared to not choose God then they won't and so you have to you have to preach the wrath of God. And I, I just think the reality is, I mean, the whole, that holy repentance comes not from fear of punishment, but a, like a genuine grief that you have been separated from the one you love, right? Like, so there, we all have people in our life who we just, think the world of like picture whoever it is it's a a family member a, a child you love a, a teacher a mentor just someone that you think the world of that you know you admire them so deeply you love them so truly and if and if they were ever disappointed in you it wouldn't be that you would fear that they would like kill you pun it hurt you it would just genuinely grieve your soul that this person you love so much w was was disappointed in you, right? Like that's that I think is the healthy kind of repentance. It's not something that can be opposed, imposed upon us. Certainly not from shame of the community or anything else. It's just actually knowing and loving God and loving God's goodness, and then really like being grieved that I've. I've sold my birthright for a, a, a cup of porridge. Like I, I've, I've harmed the people I love. Like it's not that I can't get away with it. It's that I don't want to. And um, I think then this. What did you say on the run? You said something well, about death and yeah. love. I mean, I think that we frame Ash Wednesday as like, okay, 
we're all going to die and we need to think about dying and like so so live your life right because you're going to die someday but I think the the bigger issue is that for us as followers of Jesus in the life of Jesus what we see is that the timeline of you of cosmic redemption has accelerated like the kingdom has come and so everything that we're familiar with everything that we've grown accustomed to everything the the world as it is whether we love it or hate it whether we are being crushed or are crushing it like it is passing away and this new era new realm has entered in and the question for us is which do you love like do you do you love the world that is or the world that is becoming um, and is now in Christ and ever shall be and was in the beginning. And, and to know that, you know, there are times when, you know, there's, there's points of congruency um, between these two realms and times when, you know, they are diametrically opposed. And I think, you know, part of, we, we get seduced and you see it again and again through the passion narrative, people, choose against Jesus not because they don't like what he's standing for it's because they are too afraid of the powers that Jesus is standing against so they know what is good but they're so afraid of dying that they you know they pick the like I will I I will stand for state state sponsored terrorism because I'm afraid if I stand against it I'll become a victim of it and that's you know, we, we just see that consistently. Um, we, we see, I was at a, you know, city meeting last night and, you know, people were voting on the dais for a series of, um, ordinances that they were saying, like, I, 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 this hurts my heart. I I hate it. This is not in my heart. I'm full of compassion. This is just so hard for me to make this decision. If you saw my heart, you wouldn't judge me for this. So, I mean, they're saying like, I don't, I don't want to do this, but I just think it'll work. So I'm going to, do it because this is this will just this is what's going to work and I think that that's the challenge it's like we are so familiar with how the ways of threat and death and destruction work we can we can trust them we don't know the ways of peace we don't trust the ways of peace we are not willing to risk our lives on the ways of peace because you know we just don't and I think that God has tremendous compassion for us in that, but I mean, we're choosing death. Yeah, and what you're saying helps us to understand the Apostle Paul when he says something like, I am, like right now in this present life, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And so he's made such a definite choice for the realm of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that which is um, already inaugurated and yet still coming, and against the world that has passed away, that he can say, I am already crucified. Right, and that's, you know, to die to self and be born again, like, these aren't dramatic metaphors. They are spiritual realities. And wherever we are in the spectrum, like, I'm not saying, I am not saying that I have completed that process at all. And I, I struggle deeply with this all the time and half heartedness. And I, you know, I'm afraid. I mean, so I just, I, I'm not standing in judgment. I'm not in standing in judgment against people who were on the dais last night, you know, voting in a way that I think they shouldn't have. Like I, I understand how hard it is to stake everything and risk your life on a, on another way um, that that you just feel like, well, this can't work. Like all the evidence says the only thing that will work is, you know, threats and the permission to do violence. And, um, it, you know, it's just the way of Christ is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And it does have costs. And um, so anyway, I, yeah, but I do think it's the big thing about let recognizing that death is inevitable for us and, and then making a sober choice about what we will love most and, and what we really want to stake our lives on and not living so afraid of death that it shapes what we love. Um, and so the point of saying, 
we're not seeking death, we're not glorifying death, but there are, but saying really we believe that our lives are eternally secure in Christ and that there are worse things than death, which is an outrageous thing to, to say. But I think until you have a community of people who are willing not to kill, but to die, um, to resist forces of death, then, then those forces of death reign supreme, which is what Jesus was doing on the cross, like resisting forces of death without employing them to kill other people. So that's, are you going to thinking? What sure. Are what are you about? thinking about? Well, um, I want to talk about two things and I'm hoping you you'll claim allowed. one of them. <laughs> well, uh, we just had the Super Bowl this past Sunday. Um, and one thing that is getting a lot, a lot of buzz that is particularly relevant to this podcast were a couple of ad spots um, for Jesus, um, commercials for Jesus, um, commercials that were not, were theologically sound, um, a, a spot about, I only, I only saw, I think I saw both of them, but I can only remember right now one that um, pictured foot washing um, and it was with just different people who are um, in current culture wars really opposed to one another, washing one another's feet. Um, and I, and I'm, you know, I, I think that's an orthodox message and things to, con and thing to consider. And now and the tagline, and I do think the tagline is stupid. Um, he gets us is the tagline. I, I don't even know what that is supposed to mean, but okay. But anyway, there's, um, but the ads themselves were like very well produced. And I think were more compelling than many a thing that you um, <laughs> see in the marketplace about Jesus. Um, but, but the conversation around them has been, hey, who is the group that is putting these on and what are their, um, what's their stance on different social issues like um, LGBTQ rights? Um, and uh, also to buy these spots in the Super Bowl. Um, I think Super Bowls are now $14 million for a, a minute. So to buy these spots was um, a considerable amount of money and people are saying like, why, like if you're really walking in the way of Jesus, why would you use those resources to buy supermarket, Super Bowl ads as opposed to, um, you know, doing the work of the kingdom, feeding, healing, whatever. Um, and I just think for me, the deeper issue is like, why, <laughs> why do we think that Jesus needs a commercial? And, if we do think that Jesus needs a commercial, why, like, needs a needs marketing, um, which is another way of saying evangelism, right? Like, why do we think that the marketplace is the only way or best way to do that? Because I do think for people to understand that Jesus is calling us to a life of enemy-loving, radical humility, intimate acts of service like foot washing across all the dividing lines of culture. Like, I do want people to know that about Jesus, but I don't think that learning about it abstractly from a Super Bowl ad is helpful. Like, people need to experience it in their lives. And so what we need as a community of believers is to say, hey, like, I am the Jesus advertisement. And while people have all sorts of speculation about what the agenda was of the people who produced that ad, if you're just and extraordinarily a person who is living out these this orientation to the world in your actual life, no cameras, no credit, no monetary backing, like that, that is what is compelling. And that is what is presenting people with the truth about who Jesus is. Um, you know, that, that happens when 
the church, which is the body of Christ, lives out these actions, not when we have a commercial. So like, I'm not gonna like talk trash about the people who put out that ad. Like I don't have any trouble, um, believing in their good intentions. Um, but I just think what we need is not for people to like intellectually assent to, okay, I'm a Christian now. (laughs) What we need is for people to, um, come alive in Christ and begin to live from, you know, from the values of Christ in the world and, you know, making those choices in their, in their workplace, in their families, in their, in their finances. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have a, we have a community of people practicing enemy love and neighbor love and welcoming strangers and, you know, gathering to get lost in awe and wonder at the beautiful mystery that is God So I think, you know, we just often try to do things big and efficiently because we think, you know, well, isn't Jesus as worthy of a Super Bowl's commercial as a bag of Doritos? And it's just because we don't understand, we don't understand how the kingdom comes. (laughs) We don't understand that this, you know, capitalism, commercial marketing, I mean, these are very powerful forces in our world. But what we are saying is that Jesus isn't beholden to them. Jesus doesn't need them. So I, I do think the church needs to get serious about, for lack of a better word, advertising, evangelizing for Jesus, inviting people in, thus my soapbox from the previous week. Um, and I'm not mad at the people who are trying to do that. I'm just saying, you know, a, a well-produced ad in the Super Bowl, people, people know that (laughs) ads are not true. Um, people, people need the truth about Christ to be embodied, um, or else it doesn't matter. And the only body that we have to offer to Jesus is our own. Yes, I totally agree with you that people need the truth of Jesus to be embodied. I believe that all day, every day, that's true, 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 true. This makes me think of the debate years ago, it may still be happening in some circles, uh, about prayer in schools. I remember being in a Bible study years ago uh, that I was teaching, and uh, the people attending that Bible study were very upset. And they said, you know, all of our problems started when they took prayer out of schools. I said, do you realize that you can pray anywhere? The problem is not a lack of prayer in schools. The problem is a lack of prayer in the church, that we are not living out the very thing we say we want to see in the society. And it's, as the song says, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. We, we are the problem. And so, yes, I think you're right. Uh, the truth needs to be embodied. And my reaction to those ads is this. I think there is a very dangerous set of ideologies that every American, especially every American Christian, must navigate. I think few people see it. They may see one side, but not the other. But I think This is everywhere, all around us, and we must have our eyes open to this reality. And this is what I'm talking about. On one side, and it's the right, the conservatives, there is the preaching of Jesus the presentation of Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is true and right and good, all day, every day. But the history of this country says that so often behind that is violence, oppression, and things that are the very opposite of Jesus' kingdom. So we have a history of Christians 
especially white Christians in the South, leaving their churches on a Sunday morning after hearing about Jesus, going across town to pull some black person out of their house and then lynching them and thinking they were doing the work of God, right? That is a very present reality. And I understand, I see these ads that way. I, I Personally, I think it's a bait and switch because the group behind these ads are a very conservative group that frankly, I don't think would love to have me at their dinner table. And I'm a pastor, right? I, I, I just think that. That's on, that's on the right. On the left, we got people preaching a Jesus who is not supernatural. He's a good moral example, even a good teacher. Um, he will help you organize your community. <laughs> um, but this is not someone you need to obey. This is not someone you need to surrender to. Uh, and so this, this Jesus is, 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 a, is a kind of uh, a mascot for... Um, a political agenda. Uh, for a political agenda on the left. And again, there are there, there's a kind of bait and switch to this uh, agenda as well. And I think it's easy, so easy for us to see one side and not the other. Like some people can just see the conservative stuff a mile away, and other people can see the liberal stuff a mile away. And so they gravitate toward one side, and the, the other side becomes the enemy. And they miss the very trap, the, the quicksand that they are sinking in. And we have got to learn how to see both and navigate our way uh, by the word and the spirit, by the example of Jesus, uh, through these very dangerous um, I would say even demonic um, ideologies because they are, uh, they, are, they are giving us a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. One preaches orthodoxy, but behind it is hate. The other preaches um, um, social righteousness, but behind it there's, there's a, uh, that Jesus is a, is a vapor. Well, I mean, I do think that it, and I said I didn't have anything to talk about uh, today. Yeah. I mean, I do think that when you when, when you come up as as I did in seminaries, basically seeing you know the religious right conservatism is kind of I mean it it's not necessarily articulated, but is constantly sort of the the un unsaid example of this is what we're not, this is what we're against, and so. But what you don't often see is that you're being taught, I think accurately, who Jesus is in Scripture and sort of the grand narrative of Scripture and where God shows up in the world. And so righteousness looks like this and not that. But then there's still this sense that you're going to go out in the world and you are going to be sent into certain illustrious, you know, positions and jobs and roles in order to advocate for that righteousness and, you know, use the powers, use, you know, use the gifts and the um, power that God has given you to legislate for God. And, and it's, it's the same, it's, it's a mirror image of this, of the same thing. Just this idea that, okay, we know the truth. We know what righteousness is and we will then, for God's sake, impose it. We'll invite people in, but if if they won't come, we will, with either hatred or contempt, exclude and impose, um, but not but not serve. And so, to to really understand that, you know, Jesus was offered political power by the enemy of our souls, and he said no. And and the church has, on the right and the left, um, has has really sought that out because at the end of the day, we believe that true power lies in human governments and there's no way that God can be God without getting control of these institutions. So, but it's the same idolatry. And I think, you know, that's not to say that we, you know, we're in the world and not of it. And we need to live, I think, with the tension of we are not called, I don't think, well, I know for sure, we are not called to build a bunker and withdraw 
and protect ourselves. Um, we are called to be in the world and participating and be being light and salt and shining like stars in the sky. And that means participating in all things, including whatever political system that we find ourselves in, but also to know that God is not limited by or disenfranchised through these systems, which doesn't mean we celebrate injustice when it is, you know, when it is presented as righteousness, but also we don't despair when, when something that is um, unrighteous gains ascendancy. And we know that the people on the other side are, are not our enemies. And I think that's what's really hard. Correct. Because even on both sides, whether you're on the, on whatever side of the Christian culture for, war you're fighting, if you don't hate the people on the other side, then you are accused of not being with the people on your side. And the problem is, like, Jesus doesn't have sides. And so when we really embrace that Jesus ethic as peacemakers, everyone will hate us. Um, and, and that's really hard hard to do. I mean, I, I was at a city council meeting last night about which I had very strong opinions about, you know, what would Jesus do? Um, and I, I lost, like I always lose. (laughs) It's like part of my spiritual gifting is just losing for Jesus. Um, but you know, there were just lots of people there speaking with great, um, expertise and wisdom and passion, um, against this particular legislation and the whole crowd that was there was there against the legislation, which of course passed, <laughs> wasn't even close. And there were only four people in the room who were for it. Um, and, but when people spoke for this legislation, people from the galley were shouting like shame, shame and, you know, names or whatever. And I'm like, I mean, I understand that on a human level and I certainly don't know if the people in the galley would have claimed to be Christian or not, I don't know. But I just think like we would show up and, and, and say, this is, you know, this is how I believe that Jesus calls me to live in the world. But we don't, we don't shout shame against people who disagree because the only reason to the extent that I am right, it's only because I've been rescued from my own sinful myopic selfishness. It's only because God has gifted me with the grace of a second chance and, and then some. And so, um, you know, you can't despise, like no one can be invited over to a different way of being if they know that they are hated and despised and unwelcome. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, but I also get that like where we are, I mean, the devil's good at his job. Like where we are right now is is more than we want to win. We want to destroy the people who we want the other side to lose. And and so, you know, if there's a chance to be winsome and like gentle as dove and shrewd as serpents, like we don't want to do it. So tomorrow begins the season of Lent and we are headed to the cross Right, we're we're headed to Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, and on Good Friday, many of us may read the text. I mean, it's just a, it's a crazy, mind blowing, almost a, like dangerous text that says that the very Son of God, who has power unimaginable, unimaginable was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he did not open his mouth. Now, I draw a line from that to young men and women sitting at a lunch counter in Greensboro having ketchup and other condiments poured on them, being yelled at them just for trying to have a lunch, saying nothing responding nonviolently. What if, what if our protests today look like that? Because on the left and the right, the, 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 the anger is such that that is, uh, the response is, that, well, that's just foolish. That, that accomplishes nothing. Well, I think it's worse than that. I mean, the accusation is if you are not angry, then you are a collaborator. Yes. And yeah. you're betraying 
people. And I think, you know, I think the bottom line is, again, I'm not talking about people who have a particular political agenda because that I don't have any, I'm not their Lord. I don't have anything to speak to them. But, but if Jesus is your Lord, then the model of Jesus is that, um, that we, we have to love righteousness and trust God more than we hate evil and fear, um, fear our enemies. To say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the way, means that he has a way that we are to follow. Right. And so I do think, like, look, a lot of times, just by showing up and saying what you think um, the gospel wisdom is in a situation, like, people will have their feelings hurt. People will feel attacked. So I'm not saying that the way of Jesus means people will always experience you as loving or nice because that's not true. But I do think, you know, again, not everyone's on the way of Jesus, but I do think that being on the way of Jesus means like, I just don't, I can't think of a person that Jesus would have screamed an obscenity at or yelled um, shame on. Now, and I want to be clear, like, even though often we react as if the worst thing in the world is a nice white lady is called a name and we think like, oh, that's, they've gone too far. I want to be clear that in the spectrum of human suffering, like hearing someone call you a name is not as bad as being forced to live in the streets or be a victim of generational systemic racism, which is kind of suffering that we just accept as inevitable and it doesn't shock us and it doesn't really bother us and we don't have any urgency about it. So, I mean, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, the, the worst thing in the world is to make sure that nobody calls anybody else names. In fact, I think the reality is, you know, if you were going to be a part of disenfranchising vulnerable people and putting their lives at risk in order to protect your comfort, like people are going to call you names. (laughs) Like that's just, you know, part of the small price that you will pay for having the world the way you want it to be. Um, But I also think that as a follower of Jesus, we are able to, you know, glorify God, speak of righteousness from a place of humility, identifying as a sinner saved by grace and have no contempt in our hearts for people who, um, in my perspective, with all humility are just, are, are, are just lost in the power of lies and unbeknownst to themselves worshiping the gods that can't save them. And so, um, you know, on our, in our healthiest place, I believe that we are all going to get to the place of understanding that there's enough love and abundance and shalom in Christ for all of us and that my neighbor is not a threat um, and it is going to require radical change that I think will feel more, will seem worse than death to a lot of people who love the world as it is, but it won't be. Um, and we have to understand that anybody who is against us is eventually the person that's going to sit at the table when God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies because they're not our enemies anymore. And that kind of radical vision Um, I think is necessary to be able to not win every battle, but to, to create space so that someone could really listen to a small voice in their heart of like, Hey, there's another way. And actually that other way is a real possibility. And everyone who loves me and likes me isn't stuck in the system. Like if I, if I made a step, that step would be celebrated and I, and I would be accepted in a new way of life. Um, so sometimes I think we would rather have enemies than new brothers and sisters because our enemies make us feel righteous. Well, yes, and there are voices actively stoking anxiety and fear, right? So um, what's one conspiracy theory? Oh, oh, there's... Um, there's an active movement to replace white people with people of color. Like people of color are just going to take over and uh, are going to 
um, be the new oppressors. And so if you don't um, stand your ground, if you don't um, keep institutions the way they are, if you don't roll back voting rights and other things, then you're going to be replaced. Now, once you start stirring up that kind of anxiety, then it's easy for someone to then justify hanging on to the way the world is. Well, and we've talked a lot before about it's just easier to build a movement and build a community and build an identity around what you're against than to build a movement, yeah. a community, an identity around what you're for. And and really knowing what you're for will have inherently some element of what you are against, but so many of our movements are only about what we're against and, and not about what we're for. Yeah, and so. the thing that keeps me of <laughs> somewhat sober mind, but definitely um, joyful and hopeful heart is my faith that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Jesus. It is expanding. This world is passing away, this present age, and that the day is coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And, and Jesus will say, behold, I make all things new. Yeah, and I think when I look forward to the future in, in my flesh, as folks would say, I, I feel a lot of fear and despair and anxiety, maybe only those things. But when I look through the eyes of the Spirit, then you you have hope. And I think, you know, the, the challenge is when we feel like it's up to us to usher in the kingdom of God, then we quickly move to compromises. Like, well, we just got to use these tools and the end justifies the means. And this is all like these, this is the only way we can bring the kingdom in. And so we got to do what we get like needs must, which is functional atheism. But when we really believe that God is doing something and actually my weakness and my sinfulness and my half-heartedness and my hypocrisy are not are not limiting the future um then again like an uncertainty about the future is actually really helpful not knowing everything is actually very helpful because it opens us up to ways that god can be moving and at work in the world that we wouldn't recognize and certainly wouldn't trust or celebrate and and yet I don't have to resort to you know these I don't have to resort to ways that I know aren't of God in order to try to make a future that's better than the one I see coming down at me that I can um, lean not on my own understanding and trust God and walk in God's ways even when that looks like um, a waste and so yeah. And that's what this Lenten season is about. We are going to the cross. Who would have thought, who would have thunk that God would use an instrument of Roman torture and death for the salvation of humanity? Right. And that on the third day, Jesus would, Jesus was, would rise from the dead, even though he said so. It, 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 that's just an astonishing reality. Right. And I think, you know, that's sort of the where we're going this Sunday in preaching because I think we need to talk about the other thing next week so we can really digest it. And, yeah, um, we have an article we want to talk about next week, but we'll we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on this Sunday, I think we're both going to preach um, where Jesus um, rebukes Peter from trying to prevent him from going to the cross. And, and the rebuke, well, I mean, he calls him Satan, so that sort of calls all our, like, catches your attention. <laughs> That's pretty clear. But beyond that, what he says is, you have your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And I think, well, like, when we have our mind on these human systems, we resist the cross with every fiber of our being because because we know how human systems work. And we and and also, what's also true in that is that we we don't know God as well as we think we do, right. that God's ways are indeed higher. And I think, you know, our highest end becomes, I, I want to make sure I don't end up on that cross. So whatever I have to do to avoid that cross, I have to do it. And it's justified because I'm only human. And what am I going to do? And, and so the cross becomes the greatest power in the world. The cross as an instrument of death and terror becomes the greatest power in the world. And, and what Jesus is saying is, Hey, Peter, you can't have your mind on the things of man. 
You have to have your mind on the things of God, which admittedly is tricky because the things of God are beyond our understanding. Um, but, but what the cross should show us is that God is able, um, not just to wipe the slate clean and throw away all the bad people like garbage and start again, but to turn our places of deepest human sin and destructiveness and despair into the source of goodness and life and hope. That's, that's why the cross is beautiful and not terror. Um, but, but we have to believe that we don't know everything and put our faith in what we can't know for sure. So we should stop for today, right? You got to pick up your kid. You want the last word. I love you to have the last word. You would love for me to have the last word. I, I don't know if I have a, a last word. No, I, I'm looking forward to preaching um, this text about Peter because I don't think I've ever, I've referenced it in sermons, but it is amazing that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I, I, I really don't know exactly what to do with that, so I'm looking forward to Well, and I it. think, you know, apropos of our earlier discussion, you know, we tend to see people on the other side as, like, demon-possessed, and so they need to be feared and resisted and destroyed. And it's interesting how, like, Jesus is just really doesn't seem that surprised or bothered by Peter. I mean, True. we think, like, oh, my gosh, Jesus would be like, you... Like, I'm going to, like, laser eye you and reduce you to a pile of ash because you're, uh, you know, Satan's got you. And so now you're corrupt and destroyed and irredeemable. And Jesus is like, yeah, just walk behind me now, okay? Yeah. Cause, and, and so I think that's really interesting. Like, we, we give death too much power. Um, oh, I think I just made a connection. You know, as we read the text old and new testaments we're supposed to see connections between the two i wonder if jesus saying get behind me to peter is connected in any way to that place in the old testament where moses asked to see the glory of god or asked to see the face of god or the glory of the god, glory and, of god. And, and and um god says no one can see my face and live but i'm gonna let you see my back Oh, that's interesting. And right. then and, just and saying as in, you will go behind me and yeah, that's when you'll see and, my glory. And, oh, wow. And, and, that, and there is astonishing glory there, right? Um, and so oh, but I, really I'm going to make all my goodness pass by you. And I wonder if there's a connection because, again, there, there's this whole um, Exodus um, uh, account of, of the deliverance of God's people. What is Jesus doing? He is delivering us from sin and death. Yeah. I wonder if there's a, a connection there. Well, I do think, I mean, it is fair to say something about what, like Moses wants to see God and something about God's response is, um, is illustrative of what our proper orientation to God is mm -hmm. and like what happens when we want to go ahead of God yeah. or, you know, go, you know, beside God, or, you know, that, I mean, that is a sense to say, like, if you can't be content with following God, if you can't be mm -hmm. content with the view from behind, yeah. then you, I mean, there's just something I think, and I, we struggle, I've been thinking about this a lot of just like, we, I think still just really struggle with the idea that we are humans and not God, and we are offended. And I mean, I the, again, like twenty years ago, I would have been like, "This, this is dumb. Like that's dumb. Speak for yourself, lady. What are you talking about?" So I, I mean, I think just being older and wiser, and just knowing myself better, you know, I think even now when I was I was sitting down with some people and we were talking about the story of the temptation in the garden, and I mean, there's just something intrinsically offensive to so many of us about this idea that like. God told them not to eat from that tree. Like, like how dare God? Yeah. Like, how dare you tell <laughs> right. me not to eat from that tree? Yes. Like, you don't know what's best yes. for me, right? Yes. And like, I think what, be, and like, literally, we're like, this is so, like, why would God get so bent out of shape about this? Like, this wasn't very godlike. Like, this wasn't very compassionate. Like, yes. just the sense that, like, I know what goodness is. So, God, since you did that, and it seems petty to me, so it couldn't have been good because we really feel like, well, God should conform to my, mm -hmm. my idea of goodness, and um. 
and it's just this intrinsic sense that like, well, no, we do know what's best for ourselves. And I will acknowledge you as God as long as you meet my expectations. But the second that you don't, I'll just be like side eye, right? Um, So I think, well, anyway, we have to stop. So thank you all so much for listening to us. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, you can go to their website, the which is www.deridachurch.com. And you can check out the um, Derida Church podcast, which is on the Podbean website or their YouTube channel. You can hear how Yolando is going to talk about Peter being Satan and God's behind on Sunday morning. Wait, what? Is that um, that where we're going? I mean, it was right there. What's happening? Um, And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to that website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to The Grove Church podcast or YouTube channel. Um, You want to look for the um, green, the icon of the green tree with roots because there's lots of groves in the world. They're the Grove Charlotte. Don't go to the Grove CLT because that will take you to an exclusive gymnasium and health club. That's not us. Um, You can worship with Derrida at 11 o'clock on Sundays. You can worship at the Grove at 10 o'clock on Sundays. You probably can't worship at both of us because... We go long. We go I was long. Say because we're both long preachers. <laughs> so, but thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. 